Hello, welcome to the Eye of the God podcast. I'm your host, Mariam Shab. Happy Friday. Thank you so much again for supporting the I Am The God podcast. You know, we're on season six and the team is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I just want to make sure people knows about them. We will be decoding them because this decade is a decade of action. We have eight years to go. And if you don't know, we have a massive plan. And the plan is really to make sure by 2030, we advance the global goals, businesses, NGOs, government, everyone, all of us, you listening right now can really take an action. And I will tell you why and how later on. The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development was adopted by all the United Nations member states in 2015. It provides a shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people and the planet now and into the future. I love them dearly. You know, I was in 2015 at the United Nations and I understand how important they are for the world. And at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals are 17 beautiful goals. And they have targets and indicators inside of them. So it means you can really think about, for example, like Malala Yousef, she really wants to make sure all girls and boys have access to education. Greta Thunberg, she wants to make sure climate change is at the center of all the conversation we have right now. Me, myself, at I Am The Code, I've given myself a mission to make sure one million women and girls can learn how to code by the year 2030, eight years from now. What I'm saying here is that each of us can set ourselves a goal. Don't see the goals as something that is really big and you cannot make a contribution towards. You can. You can come and work for us. You can work with many, many organizations. Many businesses right now are advancing them in their own ways. We must have a sustainable world. We need you to come and support the Sustainable Development Goals. And we all know that accelerating progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals can make a significant difference in people's life. From the favelas of Brazil, the refugee camps in Africa, in Jordan, in Lebanon, you name it. We can make a difference. That's why I invited my dear friend this week. He is so passionate about changing lives, investing into the African tech ecosystem. He's really an amazing guy. He's a pioneer who I had the privilege and the honor to work with when Google wanted to come to Africa. Yes, Google. You hear me very clearly. Google. If you have seen today the first thousand Africans who had a Gmail address, they came to the University of Dakar. I was there to organize this event. That's why today we are talking about goal number nine, innovation and infrastructure. How do you make sure we have companies right now in the tech sector, building businesses, investing in businesses, but also elevating our people? Tijan Dem used to be the county director for Google. And him and I pride ourselves for bringing Google into Africa because we could have said no, but we didn't say no. I really hope you enjoy our conversation because it was deep, but also very detailed. It's history in the making. Enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. So I think my guest is on the line. Tijan, are you there? 
I'm here. I'm extremely happy to be speaking to you. If it takes a podcast to get one hour of conversation with you, I'll do podcasts every week. Then let's do it. <laughs> Let me tell you why I invited you on the podcast. But I remember many years ago, this is a long time ago, it shows how old we are. <laughs> I was a young entrepreneur and running my company and he called me and said, hey, you know, come and help me run an event. At that time, you were part of the first Africans to work for Google. It was so amazing, so honorable for me to have my fellow Senegalese to call me to help. You know, and I always tell people, if we talk about Google today, the first Gmail addresses, Tijandem has something to do with that. You know, I know you're very humble and you don't like claiming credit for anything, but I always go back to check the photos of Google the first weeks they came to Africa. It was really, really amazing. And I think the fact that you evolved, you know, you we're running this massive organization for years and totally changed the African ecosystem. And then, you know, as a proud Senegalese, I'm so proud to talk about you all the time. And now you are really doing amazing work around investment and it's really, really fascinating. So on behalf of I Am The Code, The Girls, our podcast, everyone listening, thank you, Tijan Dem, for being here and welcome to the I Am The Code podcast. Welcome, Tijan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You should see me blush. <laughs> right now, where are you? I know you are traveling. Where are you? Actually, I had to run back to Dakar. I was supposed to be today in Lagos, but some COVID restriction issue came up and I had to rush back. Oh, wow. How has the COVID affected you? Because you've been traveling a lot before COVID, right? Yes. And it changed my life, frankly. I mean, to answer that question, COVID affected me on a personal level and on a professional level a lot. On a personal level, I was traveling every other week. 50% of my time, I was away from home, away from my family, away from my two lovely daughters. And all of a sudden, when the COVID crisis happened, I was grounded at home with them for months without traveling. And I discovered the joy of being with family day in, day out of being part of the routine of the girls, of starting a vegetable garden with them, of, uh, you know, jogging with them every day. It just opened for me this whole new perspective about what it is to be a full-time dad. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. You've been so busy and then you could see them. How old are they now? So they are nine and five now. And, uh, you know, at that age, girls are the most lovely. I claim my dotting father title entirely. I also tell people half-jokingly that for me, it's not anymore about getting women to the same level as, as men. I think we should hand them over the world to run. That's how biased I am now. That's why it's so important. I wanted to talk to you as well, because, you know, the podcast is all about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and we talk about gender equality. What does gender equality mean to you now you have two beautiful girls? It's very interesting because I grew up in a traditional Fulani family where, interestingly enough, what was important was that you always differed to your elder. And I think now in retrospective, my dad played a trick on us because that rule applied whether it was a girl or a boy. You know, your older brother, your older sister, you deferred to them, uh, you obeyed them, and they coached you and supported you. So I grew up without this notion of gender inequality. So I discovered outside my house that women were not given the same standards as men. And this is something I had to learn. And I think it probably made me more sensitive to it because I cannot think of anybody not giving my elder sister all her due. She essentially raised me. She was helping me do my homework. I just can't picture people judging her any less than a man. So with that in mind, 
you come to the science world. I studied in science and unfortunately there are too few girls in STEMs and that goes on all the way to engineering school and all the way to the whole tech sector. And it doesn't take any reflection to find it. You just look around you. And I feel there are two parts. It frustrates me because I think we are missing out on a lot of great people who are not sitting at the table when we don't have gender inequality. And it angers me because it's unfair. Again, because I can relate very easily to what it means, how people would treat, again, these girls who raised me. So that's how I feel about it. But then beyond feeling, um, I started thinking about this a lot. And my personal um, approach to this now is just each of us, where we are, we can drive gender equality. So if I make sure that, for instance, when I'm hiring, my pipeline is always balanced. If I make sure that on everything I do, I actually try and maintain that balance at the beginning of the funnel. If you say you are going to hire one person, you need to have 100 candidates, 50-50, because actually it doesn't happen organically. It doesn't happen naturally. And this is another point I had to learn over time, which is if you grow in a very, let's say, francophone environment, the cultural belief is against positive discrimination. But some of this will not happen unless we push it. So I've also learned to go against that instinct and make things happen. It's beautiful you said that. We will talk about your sister and the girls later on the podcast. What has everything begun for you? Where did you go to school? I know you are Fulani from Senegal, you know, where I came from. But where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? That might be long. <laughs> but, but actually, I feel like I grew up like many African families that you find in the capital cities, which means our parents came from the village into the city. Uh, this is very typical, right? Uh, so our, my parents came from the center of Senegal in a region called Salum, uh, near the border with Gambia. Actually, our village is two kilometers away from the border, which means our family and I, our community is spread out between two countries. My mother was born on the Gambian side. My dad was born on the Senegalese side. So they moved to the city where I was born and grew up. But in these families that retain a strong roots in the village, we used to go back to the village every other weekend and also retain the whole cultural package that came with it. And at the same time, grow up in the city and absorb and adapt to the city environment and the culture and the language of the city. So I grew up speaking Fulani at home, speaking Wolof in the streets and speaking French when I went to school. I grew up in Medina, which is a very renowned neighborhood in Dakar, first for being a poor neighborhood, I guess, but also for being, you know, for having given to Senegal great people like Isudur and the likes. So we like to brag about that. But frankly, again, it was growing up in what would be probably the equivalent today in Europe of the suburbs. Well, the thing with childhood is you always remember it fondly. I grew up in a house with a lot of people. Everybody from the village who came to the city would come to our house. My mom was cooking for dozens of people every day. Any people who were sick would come to our house to go to the hospital. People who needed to go to school would come to our house. So it was a great merry family. Very generous. You know, in Senegal, Senegal is very known for the tiranga, right? When everyone is like looking after each other. Yeah. And this is, again, I often think that if we tell this story to people who have not known what it is, it feels exceptional, but it's probably what a lot of people who grew up in Dakar in the 70s, it's what their life looked like. Their parents probably came from the village. Their house was probably the center 
of that whole community in, in Dakar. And there were probably a lot of people around and they were probably living between two cultures. If you look at the parents who have moved from villages to cities, these people were trailblazers. They left a life that was very well defined, where people were living the same way for generations. And they moved into this unknown, these cities, looking for new opportunities. And when they did that, they essentially became entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs of something bigger than a business. They became entrepreneurs of a family. They decided to build a family in a new environment. And this is why I say every parent who moved from the village to the city is uh, ultimately an entrepreneur. At a level, we will never be. As I said, again, our family, our household in Dakar became the sort of rallying point for all the community of people from that region we came from. Do you see that now where we, the black people, are, are connected in a certain way? Do you think there's a similarity or not? The, the closest I can find is actually what happens when I see a young student fly from Africa to Europe or the U.S. for studies. They will always find the community of their compatriots out there And these people will welcome them, will coach them, will help them settle. It's the closest I can find. And you land in any, any city in Europe, you will find this Senegalese or this Ghanaian or this Cameroonese house that is like a beehive. There's always a lot of people coming and going. And I think it is because these people are producing this sort of solidarity, this helping each other. And everybody, after you've settled... And after a few years, you feel the need to pay back that welcome that you got when you were arriving as a young student. You want to extend it in your turn to somebody else. And I think it's great. I benefited from it. I think a lot of Africans who fly out for higher studies benefit from this. Let me talk about your studies now. Did you study in France or in America? Where did you go and get your education? So I did all my basic studies until high school in Senegal, again, still in that neighborhood at the heart of the cauldron, as we say. And then I had a scholarship to go study in France where I went through what they call class préparatoire. It's this system of highly elitist, very competitive, two years prep to enter engineering schools in France. No, but you were smart. Come on, that's why. <laughs> It's competitive. Well, so this is another, maybe another part of leadership from home. My dad was a teacher in our family. We are teachers of Quran, so traditional Quranic school from father to son. So I always tell people, yes, I went to study in the secular school, in French school, but leaving your life in books, pursuing knowledge is what is the tradition of my family. So I was not given any any choice in this. I was not given any option. It was, you're going to go all the way to doctorate or there's no or, you're going to do it. It was always extremely important and very strongly emphasized in our group. So studying was not something I had to think about. You had no excuse. It's interesting that my dad would take kids from the village who needed to go to school And he ended up putting through school all the way to master level, about 22 kids. And again, I insist, this might sound exceptional until you look around in Dakar and you'll find a lot of families that, where, where this happened. And where are these 22 people now? Do you see them? Do you know them? Oh, yes. So we are all over the world, of course. And uh, we are on a WhatsApp group day in, day out. And we are trying all together 
now that we've formalized it and structured it, we're trying to pursue this mission that our father had to support people through education and health. Oh, that's beautiful. It's like being an alumni or like being these fellows, right? You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. What I call it is my own personal crowdfunding machine. <laughs> no, I can see that. That's really amazing. But you know, as I said, the podcast is really about sustainability and the work you've been doing across the world. I want to touch a little bit about the work you did at Google, because I think maybe many people don't know what you've done. What has you being one of the first Africans to be hired by Google in Africa taught you? Because I don't think you talk about it that much, right? Yeah, I think I took that in stride and probably didn't initially sit back and reflect enough on what was going on. Because uh, to give you here, I probably never gave the full story. So I studied in France. I worked there for a few years and I moved back to Senegal to start my company. Because when you lived in the tech world, in the 2000s, we all aspired to build a big company. And I felt the best place to build a great company back then was in Africa. So I moved back home to, and launched my company and I failed miserably. And then I started another company. But again, before I moved back to Senegal, I had worked in France and I had worked a bit in the US in the Silicon Valley. So which meant I had connections out there. And someday in Dakar, I received this email from a friend from the Silicon Valley who said, hey, some Google people want to travel to Africa. They want to come and visit Senegal and a few other countries and learn about the ecosystem. They need help getting connected to the right people, getting introductions. Can you help? I wondered why these people were coming, frankly. Especially at that time, right? It seemed to me that this market was way too early for Google to do business in. And this trip wouldn't lead to anything. They flew in. I helped them, I arranged a few meetings, gave them connections in Senegal and in other countries. And we had a dinner afterwards and I started asking questions. What are you doing here? And the answer was extraordinary. They said, our CEO, Eric Schmidt, has asked us to come and see how Google can open offices in Africa and build long-term prospects here. Okay, I said, yes, great, good for you. And they left. And then a few months later, they reached out and said they've decided to open offices and they wanted to hire me. And I said, no, I, I, I immediately declined and walked away. And the story would have ended there. A few months later, they came back saying, you, you know, we still want to launch this and we still want to talk to you. This time they came through another person I respected a lot, one of the leaders in this country I respected a lot. So he asked me to really consider this. So I sat down with them and the first question the VP who I sat down with asked me was, why didn't you want to even consider this job? And my answer was, you know, this market is not ready for you to do business because you sell ads, but you can only come and sell ads in this market when there are enough people online. We still need to build the ecosystem, build the infrastructure, and all that needs to happen before you can work here. And he said, okay, but if we came here, what should we do then? I said, you can't do it. It's what needs to be done is public service. Somebody needs to invest in the ecosystem. And then he, he smiles and said, what if I told you that's what we want to do? <laughs> he, he got me right there. Uh, right there I was in. It ended up, yes, I signed and joined and said, so what's the job? And he said, well, we don't know. We hired you to find out. We can only tell you that we want to invest in this ecosystem to grow it so that we get later down the road, we can do business here. I find that extraordinary that a corporate sitting in the U.S. looked at Africa, saw opportunity very early 
earlier than I thought as an African and decided to invest in it. And then they decided to put that in the hands of an African. It, it's today natural, back then, I think if you think about it, it's extraordinary. And I, I really cannot share enough, um, I don't know how to say this, but I think they, they deserve kudos for that. And they opened it up for everybody. There's one part in Europe that happened. I was called to write the policy for Africa, but it was fascinating because I remember this guy calling me, sending me, said, you need to come to our office in Victoria. At Google, this was big for me. It's like, Google? Oh my God, beautiful offices. They showed me all these Google colors and they said, we would like you to see these eight people. So you and really prestigious Africans. And they said they're all in the West and we are hoping they will become the country managers for Google. And then I wrote the policy because I had Africa gathering then, you know, Google was coming to my events in London. And so I always tell Africans today, Tijan Dem is the first African who actually, if you have a Gmail address, if no, seriously, in that time, they were not even thinking about Google Drive. And so the first Africans who had Gmail, the first thousand Africans, they came to your event in Senegal. I was so sitting in Dakar having to run the first Google event in Senegal. And uh, I had never been at a Google event in my life. Somebody, I asked, who do you know who can help me with this? And somebody recommended you. So when I called, I was calling out to somebody who knew what a Google level event would, should look like. And what I liked about the whole thing was that we did not come to Africa saying we will do less than elsewhere. You know, you came from London and you brought all those standards for an event in Africa. And it worked out well. Developers who attended this event said something that I really liked. They said the day that event happened was the day that we learned that we were valuable because Google came to us and treated us like we were valuable developers. And it was so interesting feedback because Google was just doing what they do. They never thought this is Africa, we should treat them less. They just did what they do. No, it was amazing. For me, I was so proud. I think sometimes one of the things you talk to us about is we need to know our history. We need to know what happened. The African tech ecosystem, if we, today Tija and them is investing, it's because you have this genesis, this history of actually leadership, which I know you don't like talking about, but it is true that I remember that day, these people, these are like 95 Googlers. They came all the way from Mountain View in Senegal, in Dakar. I mean, like you have to witness history to know what happened at that time. The young people who you see now, they had no idea what happened. But you did this event. It was so amazing. And we need to put it on the record just for the sake of uh, history. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see what history puts there. But the interesting thing that, you know, Google's presence in Dakar, in Lagos, in Nairobi, everywhere, at least triggered something interesting because it gave all of these techies who were out there in the woods, uh, learning on their own, working on their own. There were small communities around like Linux user groups in a few cities, but there were very few community. And all of a sudden it catalyzed this community. They came together. And I think that was then the interesting part of my first few years at Google, which was supporting this community as it came together. The bar camps happened. The first tech hubs were created. It's good to sit back today and reflect on the journey of the ecosystem because as we speak, now this ecosystem uh, raising billions of dollars every year, scaling across multiple markets. I was going to ask you about that, actually. The phase you are in right now is a very critical phase in Africa because I've seen the graft. I've seen how you've been progressing with partners across the world. Do you mind just telling the business leaders who want to go to Africa now to come and work with you? Would you mind just sharing what have you been doing on the finance part and investment? 
Okay, so this is actually, for me, the natural part of my personal journey. So at Google, we worked on the ecosystem, building it up. We worked on bringing content online. We worked on building infrastructure. And we basically told African people that if you have a computer, if you learn how to code, you can create the next Google. And then, you know, after a while, you realize that is not entirely correct, that there is a missing piece, um, that once you have the computer and the skill, you need access to capital so that you can develop your ideas. And there was very limited capital available for African tech entrepreneurs. And I remember trying at Google to create these programs around grants, around investment. And obviously, it's very hard for a big corp company that is listed in the NASDAQ to do investments in small companies in Africa. So this just couldn't fly. And this is one of the important points for me is that African entrepreneurs deserved capital on the same terms as European or American entrepreneurs, meaning investment because people believed in the profit. And the money coming to Africa was limited to non-profit money, which was great. They are the only one who were willing to come then. But I felt we were being boxed into a corner of the whole capital space and we needed to break out of that. So I was lucky enough to have my friend and former friend since school, Cyril Collin, who's French but grew up in Cameroon and we connected in France like two African boys. And he heard that I was working on this and he reached out and he said, listen, I also want to help African entrepreneurs access capital. I think this is one thing we can do for them. So we went out on this Back then, a very improbable journey to raise a $100 million fund for African entrepreneurs. Uh, when we started doing this, there had been a few teams that were far more capable, far more competent, with far more experience than we had, who had been struggling for years to raise half of that amount. Yeah, but you had a reputation and voice as well, right? So we, we didn't have investment credentials. We realized that we knew tech. We knew Africa very well but we didn't know investment. So we eventually reached out to a friend, a former classmate who worked at Partech and said, can we partner to do this? Because you already have the know-how and experience. And they did more than that. They said, no, you have to come join Partech and we do this from Partech because we believe in Africa. We pitched 360 investors to raise our fund. 359 said they believe in Africa. Only one said, no, I don't believe in Africa. I don't believe in tech space in Africa, only one out of 360 that we pitched on three continents. So this is why we were successful in raising not 100 million. We ended up raising $143 million for our first fund to invest in African startup. And we didn't sell to people, invest this money to help Africa. We sold them that they should invest this money to be part of something great that was happening and make profits. And every single investor who signed up on this fund signed up because they believed they were going to make profits and they were going to be part of building something big. None of them came to help Africans. Every single one of them came to be part of the story. So you also changed the mentality, you changed the attitude and all of that. That's amazing. And how do you feel about that? In all modesty, I didn't. The market was ready. These people make their decisions based on data and they see the data. And the data was saying uh, that uh, overall, the macro trend of the African economies is very strong. Africa was home to the fastest growing economies in the world. All African countries were growing on average 6% year on year, their economies. The middle class were emerging in all our cities. Uh, connectivity was growing. And 
Africans were buying, this is 2017, already Africans were buying more smartphones than Europe. So all of those numbers were a proof that a market is coming. And then the other part of the equation was talent. The talent pool on the continent was growing and growing. And these entrepreneurs in Africa, they were not trying to build a nice-to-have app that they were all working on fundamental problems, access to financial services, access to solar energy, access to um, health, access to education. So they're working on big problems. But also they were working on the UN global goals. Now we're talking about it. That's how you achieve them. That's how you fight against poverty by creating, by going after this, making agriculture work better, making commerce work better, creating jobs, getting people access to financial services so that they can go into business. They can actually afford to start their own businesses. This is how you get a lot of the SDGs. This is how you get there. At least this is the, the belief that drives me. No, no, absolutely. I mean, reduce inequality, right? And so this is how, how I ended up in investment. I still slap myself for my ignorance when I started. I didn't know anything about investment. Again, I was lucky to join a group that had a lot of experience and they, they, they opened up and shared what they knew with us. And today we've invested in 16 companies in nine countries in Africa. And we hope to do much more. There is an extraordinary growth in the ecosystem and there are a lot of teams that have come now and are raising funds and investing. This is the, more, the fastest growing ecosystem in the world right now, period. And uh, everybody wants it. This is how, how popular it is now to invest in African startups. We have unicorns. I think you should do a podcast with every single one of these entrepreneurs. They are the ones who are getting us there in no poverty, zero hunger, education, gender equality, they're the ones doing it. Climate change as well. Africa is deploying more uh, solar home systems than any other part of the world. These solar kits that you put on your house in rural area or semi-urban areas, and then you have light, you have access to information, you have, it's being deployed in Africa. Why? Because startups figure out that they could do this by providing it uh, basically setting it up on your house and you pay for it for your mobile money every day. You can do it and all of a sudden you unlock access to energy and light. The biggest pool of people who don't have access to energy is in Africa. And all of a sudden you not, not only give them access to energy, but you give them access to solar energy. From the get-go, you build it sustainable. This is one big win that startups have achieved in Africa. For, for sustainability that I think we don't find anywhere else. What does sustainability mean to you and, and the team you work with right now? So when we invest in a company, we look at the potential growth of the company. We look at the team and how good they are. We look at the business models. We look at how this can become a great business. And we ask the question, will we make profit from this investment? But there is another question we always ask. And it's very hard to express it, but we ask ourselves, will we be proud if this company succeeds? So, of course, as an investment fund, an institutional investment fund, we already have in our bylaws, in our mandate, we have already hard-coded a lot of things. We, we don't do a lot of type of businesses that are like selling tobacco, alcohol, or some of that. We don't do gambling. Yeah, we have to say, will this company make us proud? And one of the ways a company makes us proud is if they have impact on this intangible. Will this company, what they're building, is it sustainable? Will it 
give a lot of people jobs. Will it actually create more value in the economy? Will it treat its customers right? Because if a company can make a lot of money without treating their customers right, but we wouldn't be proud of that success. For instance, we track the impact of our companies. And one of the KPIs we track is how many female are hired in high-paying jobs. Because again, it's easy to say I'm doing gender equality and then you hire only female on you know, the, the low-paying jobs. So the question is, how many females? So our companies, for instance, our portfolio today have 38% female in management role. This is important for us. How many jobs this company have created? How many users have this company brought into the financial system? These are the metrics we track and we report on it. Dad, I love your KPIs. You know, business can be a force for good, you know, as long as its purpose is not just merely making money, but as you said, serving communities, serving humanity and satisfying social needs is, is so important. That's amazing. And to give the credit where it is due, I think DFIs, development financial institutions, have been and are still playing a key role into driving this because they are the main source of capital in Africa. And when their capital comes with these incentives to track these kind of things, it aligns the whole chain, the whole ecosystem. And this is, this is part of it. But it is also very difficult today to create a startup in Africa and not have positive impact because... Again, these startups are all addressing fundamental goals. For instance, if you think about a startup that is training people and then giving them access to remote jobs from everywhere around the world, this is a startup that is addressing a key problem for the youth in Africa, which is training and jobs. And this is a startup doing this, right? So this, again, and this is startup is doing it as a business and it's working as a business and it's scaling. I always tell people, again, there are great startups that we did not invest in because we would not be proud. Do you think now, moving forward, as we head to 2030, where we're going to be, you know, thinking about this is the decade of action, of course, right? We're going to make sure the SDGs are being advanced. Do you think we need to start talking about how businesses, entrepreneurs, Although they're aligning their businesses with the SDGs, they may not know, but do you think we should talk about it more? Yes, I think there is one work that is important. It is to switch the narrative on these SDGs. For a lot of businesses, they perceive them as some constraints that some investor or some regulator is placing on them. So it's a box they have to check, not because they care, but because they have to. And we have to move it into a different zone, a zone where they do it because they care. Because what I believe is that entrepreneurs, on problems they care about, they are collectively an extraordinary force. So for now, unfortunately, there is a lot of checking boxes versus let me drive this because I care. No, I agree. A friend of mine who's coming on the podcast, she is the you know, CEO of UN Global Compact. One of the things she wants to do is really educate people around the SDGs and how do we align them. So that's why I wanted to have you to really decode this for the entrepreneurs who will be listening to you. But let me go back a little bit on your childhood and your character as a person, which I really, really admire. I know you talk about your dad and your sister. Did, did you have any mentor on the way guiding you to be where you are today? I was lucky enough to grow in this environment where there was so many people taking good care of me. I, I mentioned my dad. I mentioned my sisters getting me through school. And every time I'm asked this question, it feels like I have to choose. So I'll just give a few examples. Outside my family, 
I went to school in and had an English teacher in my first year in secondary who was more than a mentor. She just took interest in me and decided that I was better than I was and decided to make me the person she saw in me. And, and she really believed in me and supported me throughout. And when I went to study in France, she is the only person who would write letters to me every week. And her letters would always have this quote down there from a text that we have studied with her in class, which was about when you were climbing up the palm tree, people help you, tool you to get up the palm tree. But when you get up there and get to the fruits, look down and remember them and share the fruits with them. And she would call me out on this all the time. She would challenge me on my grades all the time. I never was good enough. She would say, I know you can do better than this again. I know it. And she did not do this just with me. She did this with a lot of her students. And she also taught us because our English course was a lot about debate. That the way she taught us English, again, remember, English is not my native language. I grew up in Senegal speaking French, but the way she was teaching us English was she would take topics that were very important to us and we would debate them. And it went from religion to safe sex to uh, political debate, everything, every topic. And throughout those conversations, she was also teaching us beyond language. She was teaching us to debate and respect each other's ideas. And it was very important to her. She always insisted that everybody had something to bring to that debate. And this, this woman was an extraordinary character. And she was a teacher in a small school out there in Dakar. And she followed me throughout. Until she passed away, she would write letters, she would call. When I came to visit her family, she would, you know, show me to her neighbors. He is my student. That, that pride she had in her students. She was very proud of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and it's extraordinary, these people. And if you are lucky, you meet many people like that in your life. And each shape you in their own way through a phase of your life. I, I arrived in France and there was another guy there uh, called Michel Dutey who would take care of Senegalese students who were doing class préparatoire. He was mentoring us. He was, again, asking us to do better. He was keeping track, making sure that we don't fall through the cracks, that we don't get into trouble. He did all of that just because he wanted to. It was not his job. So for me, these are the heroes. Uh, you know, your family mentors you because they're your family. My father had to mentor me. Yes, these two teachers, they didn't have to do this. I, I Today, I go to people and ask for mentorship. But I always remember, for these people, I never had to ask. They just gave it. No, I understand. But it's, it's quite interesting you said that because, you know, at I Am The Code, we have a mentoring program. And I think about the young boys and girls who are listening to you right now. You know, the boys who are listening to you right now are refugees from, from Africa we have 200,000 refugees in, in Kakomo refugee camps. So they, we have listening centers where they listen to all leaders like you. Uh, it's fascinating. I really hope boys and girls, you're listening to this and you're feeling inspired. You know, at I Am The Code, we now have 30,000 girls into the program and we teach them how to code. May I say this? I watched I Am The Code start from the beginning. When you say that number, 30,000 in the program today, it is extraordinary. It used to be lucky people who, who get access to this. And that now you have 30,000 people. This is scaling. Really impressive. It's quite a lot. Thank you so much, Tijan. What are the skills do you think that these boys and girls right now, you know, 20 years old, 25 years old, listening to you, 
what are the skills you have that you know you can share with them and what 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 should they really look forward to but i think one of the most important skill to have around is the ability to sit down discipline yourself and spend a lot of time and effort learning something there is no easy way there is only the hard way which means for some people and for instance creative people or people with attention deficit it is hard to sit and discipline yourself and learn but i really believe it is a skill actually having that this ability to learn and to spend a lot of time and to repeat and to train yourself i'm having this conversation with my daughter recently i was trying to tell her the difference between uh, understanding something and practicing it mm-hmm. until you become really good at it i was telling her you know everybody knows how to run but if you want to be an athlete out there on the track winning medals you have to practice running again and again and again and again until you become the best runner around and i think whatever we work whatever we do this is one thing we all need to do sit down take the time practice and become really good at what we're doing when you were young do you think the quran helped you because for me when i think about you and when i hear you maybe i know you for a very long time i feel you have this certain clarity in your mind in like the way you you put things together is it because of the quran what is it it's very interesting you ask this question because what i was saying about sitting and practicing this is where i learned it because when i was a kid in my house my dad's quranic school when i was learning quran you have to memorize it and the only way to memorize it is to sit down and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until you memorize it and it's interesting because again i was and i'm always a person with a lot of attention deficit my attention span is very short and it was very hard for me to do this and this is why i had to do it i don't have a choice and this is why i learned to do it so sitting down and learning something and memorizing it is something i definitely got from there and then you know you talk about clarity if i am to put that to something it's again this obsession with words of course you know when you're learning quran they teach you that you will always quote it with the exact word you are not allowed to to diverge from the word when you are doing translation and commentary uh, words are important you have to express something very precisely with the right words you have to speak aloud you have to hear yourself say it and then at least where i was studying people were really obsessive about how you pronounce things and everything so but again for me the crux is you started yeah from very low standards of pronunciation of everything of clarity and then you were forced to go back and iterate until it becomes very clear and uh, your thoughts when when you talk about something you know think about it and then until you can express it in a way that is really clear satisfying and precise is important to come back to your original question talking to your network This is something that that I can't emphasize enough. There is nothing you see somebody doing out there that you cannot do. This is true. Every single one of you can do everything. But the inescapable price is you have to put the effort in and practice. But the confidence you should have is if you practice you will be one of the best in the world. This is sort of a hard price but also you know what you're getting there's no risk in learning. I love that. If you practice you'll be very good. One of the thing I love about what you said is that it's an excellence without excuse. 
I've met extraordinary people, geniuses, who just, it was easy for them. Frankly, there are very few people like that. And frankly, somebody who works hard will beat them. So excellence is practice. The only thing I've noticed is you only speak when you have to say something. (laughs) I've learned that uh, from you. And is it because um, you listen and observe and then speak? Because like many people, I have some imposter syndrome where you believe that people are overestimating your capabilities. But also because when I was first starting my first company in Senegal, one important leader in our ecosystem, Tijan Bai, who was the CEO of Sonatel, told me something important. He said, if you want to lead, speak last. This is the only way you get everybody's contribution before you make a decision and speak up. And I found that a very valuable lesson. It's important to hear what everybody has to say. And if you're loud, there are people who will just sit back and keep quiet and you lose their contribution. Yeah. You're not going to hear. But it's something that I had to learn again. I had to learn it. I love that. That's beautiful. One more last question. Our podcast is a classroom. As I said, you know, we have boys and girls sitting in, in many, many places across the world to listen to you. What is the one thing you can teach to our audience today that they don't know? Hmm. Okay. Investment in tech startup in Africa between 2016 and 2021 has grown from $250 million to $5 billion. And why do you think it's that? Again, this is money. This is smart money. Smart money is coming here because there is an opportunity to build something big and make profits. Because right now, building the African tech economy is one of the most profitable thing to do. Because talent is here addressing foundational problems and building the future champions of Africa. This is why we're publishing this week our report. So this data point I just gave you is a, a premiere. We have not said it anywhere else. We're publishing it on Thursday, our report on the Africa tech investment ecosystem. And what is interesting for us is to see sectors that are important for the economy, that are digitizing and driving this investment. It's agriculture, it's education, it's health, it's logistics, it's energy. So all of these sectors the digitization, the the startups that are digitizing these sectors, and of course, fintech, financial services. All of the startups that are using technology to digitize these sectors of the economy are are thriving and raising money. So this is a classroom. And I see in this classroom the future builders of such companies. I just want to tell them that there is no other place to do it right now than in Africa. No better place to do it. I'm preaching for myself because I want all of them to start companies so that I can invest, of course. Tijan, you know, I want to acknowledge you for really doing amazing work, for being humble, being kind, being compassionate. I know the philanthropic work you do in Africa. And uh, this podcast is listened to by businesses all across the world now, the World Economic Forum, everyone, the young girls, boys growing up in marginalized communities. So I personally, from a Senegalese to a Senegalese, I want to acknowledge you and I want to really say thank you for everything you have done for me personally, for trusting me many years ago when no one gave me the chance to prove myself. But I've got one more question. You know, if you, for example, today, everything is gone. We don't have anything anymore. People are remembering you for the amazing work you've done. But what is the one thing we should think about you? What is the one thing we should uh, 
remember you for for your legacy for everything you've done well i i hope i have a few more years because i feel like i haven't done enough yet for that but there is one thing i wish to leave is having enabled a lot of people and um uh, the best way to enable people is first through education then supporting and mentoring so i hope that if people don't remember me they remember everybody i have enabled you have touched me personally so uh Tijandem, thank you again for coming on the I Am The Code podcast. Thank you so much. I love celebrating African pioneers and entrepreneurs. We don't understand what's happening in the continent, but we have beautiful human beings. Excellent, powerful, intelligent, and smart. African entrepreneurs building businesses right now into the continent. And Tijandem is one of them. He's investing. We talk about millions of dollars here. This is serious business. Please check him out. I just love him. I had to invite him to come and talk about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, but also the goals he really cares about, which is 17 and goal number nine. We must make sure the Sustainable Development Goals are discussed in the corridors of African businesses. It is a must. And I call all of my fellow Africans to really think about this very, very carefully. We don't want you to be behind. We must take action. Now, let's join forces and learn from each other. My this week take is this. Life is worth living. Make a commitment to yourself and don't give up. Keep moving. You have powerful tools in your hand right now to do extraordinary things. You are the only person stopping yourself. The only limitation is you. Be honest with yourself. Educate yourself. Learn new skills. You know, one of the things I'm learning this week is swimming. I don't know how to swim. I've taken some swimming classes. But also, I want to become a comedian. I can make people laugh. Learn new skills. You must be free by learning and by making friends. You are free. We are a very small team at I Am The Code, totally dedicated to making the world a better place by creating inspiring content for people who want to do better and be better. Don't forget to subscribe to the I Am The Code podcast. Kindly share the podcast when you can. Be a hero. Remember to donate to the I Am The Code podcast and support our girls. We have girls all across the world, over 30,000 of them that need our help. Learn about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Incorporate them in your business, in your daily lives, And please help us advance them. We can transform our world together. I'm signing off and I want to say thank you so much. See you next week. Have a lovely weekend. And thank you for listening to the I Am The God podcast. Goodbye.